Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Hola, hola, mi gente. I'm Jessica Yanez, and this is the Wine and Chisme podcast, a podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from BIPOC communities doing remarkable things, all while sipping on a glass of wine. So welcome to your new Wednesday. The Wine and Chisme Wednesday. It's a pleasure to meet all of you. Thanks for putting this together, Jessica. We really appreciate the support and the love that you have shown uh, me and my family, my wife, and uh, all the other model members that hopefully you guys will all get to enjoy here after this uh, session. My name is Guillermo Herrera. This is my beautiful wife, Angelica Renteria Herrera. We are the owners of Herencia del Valle. We're located here in Napa. We're a, a small wine producer that uh, makes roughly about 150 cases per varietal. We're making a Cabernet, a Merlot, Zinfandel, a Chardonnay, and a Sauvignon Blanc. Primarily, we are a, a grape-growing family, so the wine business is new to us. We started making wine in, in 2012. However, we've been growing grapes. Our families have been growing grapes in this valley since the 60s. Angelica's great-grandfather was coming over here as a, as a Mexican contractor through the Braceros program, and that's how uh, his kids, which is Angelica's father, that's how they ended up here in, in the beautiful Napa Valley, growing grapes and then eventually making wine. So uh, what you guys have in front of you is uh, a Sauvignon Blanc. It's a white varietal grown in the Charles Valley AVA here in Napa. If you're familiar with Napa, Charles Valley basically, well, he, let me back up. So the grapes basically come from a vineyard that my father-in-law farmed for many, many years. The property is actually the place where my wife grew up uh, as a child. So it's the Delratty Vineyards in Charles Valley. It's on the eastern side of the Napa Valley, past Critchard Hill, in a little valley called the Charles Valley. It's still in the Napa Valley. Charles Valley is beautiful in the sense that it it it's uh, it still gets that, that fog influence. And if you guys are familiar with uh, Napa and why Napa makes such great wines, is every morning during the summer, we get a beautiful uh, blanket of fog that comes in and basically protects and cools off the fruit every night. And that's very important so that those the berries can recuperate and the phenolics in those berries uh, retain a lot of the fruit forward uh, notes that we're, that we're known for here in the Napa Valley. So the Sauvignon Blanc that you guys are drinking comes from the Delratti Vineyards, which is uh, the property that my, that my wife was, uh, grew up on. The vines are pretty old. They were planted in the 80s. Uh, that's considered pretty old in, in this neck of the woods. And the way that we make the Sauvignon Blanc is we harvest it at night and we deliver the fruit early in the morning so that the fruit arrives at the winery nice and cold. And uh, the winery can then process that fruit and not have a pre-fermentation happen with the heat. Uh, that's really important so that it's basically quality control. 
We then make that wine in stainless steel, and the Herencia del Valle makes its white Sauvignon Blanc in stainless steel. However, we do introduce a little bit of oak, and what that does for us, because we're such a small wine producer, it gives the wine a little bit more life. The Sauvignon Blancs tend to fall off pretty quickly. They don't have a, a long shelf life. When you look at an old Sauvignon Blanc, the color tends to turn brownish and bronze, and that's an indication that that wine's oxidated. It started to oxidate. And what you'll notice with the Herencia wine is because we introduce a little oak to it, we give it a little bit more uh, more life. I'll be honest with you, that is typical of a small wine producer because we're not selling a lot of inventory. So our wine needs to last a little longer for the consumer so that when we do sell it and we do sell out of our inventory, it still has a lot of life and, and people can still enjoy it. It's not oxidated. That's pretty much what you guys are drinking, Sauvignon Blanc. When people first drink, what are the things that we should be smelling and tasting? If you guys can all put your glass to your nose, what you're going to notice with our Sauvignon Blanc is there's two styles of Sauvignon Blanc pretty much in the, in the marketplace. You have a New Zealand, really acidic, acidic, tart, grassy Sauvignon Blanc. And then you have what we consider the very ripe, fruit forward, a lot of apricots and a lot of uh, intense fruit, uh, tropical fruits. And that's how we make our Sauvignon Blanc. Our Sauvignon Blanc, we try to bring in at a little higher bricks. I personally don't really enjoy the grassy, uh, tart Sauvignon Blancs. I like them a little bit more fruit forward, a little bit more well-rounded and softer to drink. So right out of the gate, when you smell our Sauvignon Blanc, if you guys are going to pick up a lot of floral, a lot of apricots, and a lot of uh, different smells that you typically don't get in, in your, your New Zealand-style Sauvignon Blanc. Then when you drink it, it's very soft, but you still have some acidity there. Acidity is important, especially on white wines, because it gives you that crisp, refreshing flavor, very enjoyable next to the pool on a hot on a hot evening. We still want to retain that Sauvignon Blanc characteristic, but we want it to be a little bit more uh, fruit forward. And that's how we make RSB. So I know you guys said that you started making wine in 2012, right? You said? That's right. So our story is basically my mother and father immigrated to the United States from Mexico. My father's from uh, Durango and my mother's from Zacatecas. They came in to LA County. My mother and father uh, worked the strawberry fields. Then the family member told them there was some opportunity up north. So uh, they came up here to the Napa Valley uh, with some of our other family. Unfortunately, the relationship didn't work and they went their separate ways. So my mother basically raised me and my sisters uh, at a very young age, they split up. So it was my mother uh, working in the fields and, and uh, cleaning houses and bussing tables, trying to provide for her family. That's my childhood. Let me jump over to my wife's childhood. My wife basically comes from a, a very prominent farming family here in the Napa Valley. I'd shared with you guys that they came over here very early time in, in the 60s. Uh, her great-grandfather was coming over here in the 40s, 50s. They are from Jalisco, cerca de Guadalajara. When they came over to the Napa uh, area, they, they all... She's a pretty big family. They all, I think it's like four or five brothers. They all became very successful. They were hardworking men. Uh, <laughs> they climbed the ranks. They worked for some of the big wineries here in town. So Angelica has been around the business all her life. She grew up on a vineyard. She has seen her dad working in vineyards. Every now and then my father-in-law would get her out there to take out leaves and whatnot, do little, you know, things that kids do. Those were basically our upbringings in this industry. 
obviously Angelica went to college, so did I. We met in high school, we were just friends. What ended up happening was is when we came back, or when I came back from college, we started dating a little bit more and uh, we ended up marrying. And I was actually working in construction. Uh, I didn't want anything to do with the vineyard business. I thought it was a dead end, poor man's job. I saw how hard my mother struggled to provide for us. But in hindsight, the vineyards actually provided for us. You know, when you look at the work that my mother was able to uh, acquire, she pulled it off. It was hard for her as a single mother, but she did it. And some of the times that she would go to work, she would take me with her and I would work with her in, in the vineyards. And I remember laughing and, you know, enjoying myself as a kid. So I have some pretty memorable moments with my mom, happy moments. Angelica, I think she can talk about her upbringing. I don't think she wanted to be in the wine business either or the vineyard, <laughs> or the vineyard business. No, I didn't. I think that we looked at it as the same. We like it now, but we make it fun. <laughs> we do wine tasting, you know, for ourselves. And we go wine tasting and we have a lot of friends in the business. And it's been fun for us. But I think growing up, our parents, we work hard, but they worked more in the fields. And now, you know, having gone to school, we do... We're more of the business side. We take over the whole business. We work for ourselves, not for someone else. And that has been a blessing. And Helica, uh, quick question. How did your parents go from, you said you kind of been around it your whole life, yeah. to actually being the growers and owning, do you guys, do they own the land or do you guys own the land where all the grapes are growing? All of my dad and his brothers all managed vineyards for people. For my dad, he didn't own the land, so he you would you lease vineyards or the grapes, right? So the grapes are yours, but the land isn't. So now, as we our generations, you know, go by, you start to lease, you start to own, but it wouldn't be possible without what our parents did. You know, it was like stepping stones, right? We're really grateful for that. Yeah. So we didn't want to be in this business. I viewed it as a Growing up here in town, it's primarily a Caucasian town with the labor being Latino, being Mexican. And we were always the kids of the help. You know, I'll be honest with you. Uh, They always (laughs) in this county, you get the very wealthy and then you get the the workers, right? The families that, that tend to the vineyards and work. I remember going to school and smelling different. I would smell. It wasn't that I was dirty. I would take showers and everything. But there was a certain smell to me and my family. And as I got older, I realized that the smell that was associated with me and my mom and, and, and my uncles was sulfur. See, our families, the vineyards are sprayed with a, a sulfur to create uh, to control the funguses. And that sulfur back in the days was dust. And that dust would penetrate the clothes in my mom's, my mom's clothes and my family members. And when you go wash your clothes with your family members, it would contaminate my clothes too. So I was going to work smelling like sulfur. And for the longest time as a kid, I always thought that I always thought that, that was the smell of being poor because we were we didn't have much. And uh, as I got older, I realized that it, that it wasn't, you know, poverty. It was basically the smell of sulfur. I always said to myself, man, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna be somebody, I'm gonna do something. My father wasn't around to take care of us. I'm going to take care of my wife. I'm going to do uh, what I need to do to take it to the next level. And when I met Angelica and I saw her family and how how awesome it was that they, you know, would work. And the mother and my suegro and my suegra were together and they had their little family. I wanted that. I wanted to be able to achieve that. And I saw in them a certain level of success. 
right? They were doing well. I mean, her uncle does very well. They're very successful people here in the Valley. They own multiple vineyards and they're from Mexico. So I said, you know, I could do it. So I left the construction business and I started working for a small farming company here in town. And then I eventually moved over to her family's business where I learned all the tricks of the trade and, and I climbed the ranks. And that was uh, up to about 2007 when we started our own company, our farming company, and we started leasing properties and managing more, more acreage. And in 2012 is when we had a big property in St. Helena. We had a bunch of grapes that we couldn't sell. So we decided to basically make wine for ourselves. And that's how it started. I mean, it, it's been a long journey. It's been over 20 something years of, of trying to get to the point where we're at now. And uh, thank God, you know, we have people like you, Jessica, that support us and, and um, show us love. And we're going to keep on meeting folks like you to talk about our wine and hopefully make an impression so that you guys could uh, tell your friends and family and buy a case or two. <laughs> you have all of these people now, right? So first of all, salute to you guys. Thank you. Because that's a really incredible story to be able to like, have such these these backgrounds where me and my sister, our grandpa used to work in the fields. He used to manage the citrus and avocado fields and stuff here in San Diego. So I'm very familiar with that story. You were saying something in regards to obviously the Napa area being a very Caucasian area. How important is it? Like you got, you are the president of MAVA, which is the Mexican American Vintners Association. How important is it to have an association that helps uplift and share something with with the Mexican-American vintners in the area? And how, like, is it easy to connect within each other? I know we've talked about it, but how has that been having that association to lean on one another with? It's been amazing. It's an incredible uh, organization. It's a very expensive town to live in. It's become the destination for the very wealthy. Competition is very intense in the sense that everybody here in town makes wine. It's displaced us, the farmers, because we no longer can afford most of the properties here in town. They're selling acres, one acre of vineyard for 350,000 bucks. It's very, very expensive. So there's a very elite group of uh, property owners and wineries. And I'll stick to Napa. I mean, they they do have this problem in other counties, Sonoma and Solano, but mostly here in Napa, there's some very wealthy families that made their money elsewhere. They come into this town and they buy beautiful properties. They, they build the Disneyland of all wineries and, and everybody loves to come and, and, and enjoy that ambiance that they have created. It makes it very difficult for us to be successful. And one of the reasons why the Mexican American Vintners Association was created was to showcase and advocate for these small wine producers, these Latino wine producers here in the Napa Sonoma area. Hi, little guy, Norma Reyes. <laughs> it's very important for us to kind of get together and support each other. The business, like I said, is difficult. There's a saying in the wine business. If you want to make a million dollars, you better start with two. That's the way it's become now. Uh, so we have to be resourceful. We have to have Zoom meetings like this, meet folks, tell them, their, tell them our story, tell them that we're here to make a high quality product. It's a small quantity, but nevertheless, our product is going to be top notch. All of the association members get very high scores in their wines. The caveat to that is we can't do distribution, or at least a lot of us can. There are a couple of members that make a large amount that can penetrate the three-tier system and the the national distribution chain. 
but for the most part, most of the uh, the MAVA members are going to produce very small quantities. You're not going to ever hear about them unless we do stuff like this. And they're going to produce high quality fruit. Yeah, I don't know if did I go off topic. <laughs> no, it's, no, no, it's fine. So Laura asked, "How did you come up with the name Herencia?" Well, that was uh, a team effort here. We when we started our farming company, there's a tendency for a lot of the companies here, and I'm not knocking them, but there's a tendency for a lot of the Latino-owned uh, businesses around here to, you know, Michoacan farming or <laughs> or Eliano farming or their hometown or their last name. There's nothing wrong with that. We wanted to be a little different. So the farming company, we ended up selecting the word heritage. Heritage because there's a lot of heritage in what we offer and the knowledge that we've acquired over. Give tribute to all of the workers that came before us that taught me how to prune and how to do all the vineyard work and my father-in-law and what he taught me. So I think there's something beautiful about giving tribute to something broader than just our name. Um, so that's how we started the farming company. And then in 2012, we wanted to do the same thing, but we wanted to say it in Spanish. So we named it Herencia. And basically Herencia and heritage are the same the same word. It's a tribute to the folks that came before us. My wife decided to, um, after many uh, renditions of, of different uh, sketches, we decided to pick on the bottle. If you look at the bottle, there's a, a dancer and that dancer is my daughter dancing ballet flocorico. Oh, uh, that's so cool. So, yeah. You so know what, look, honestly, I didn't pay attention because I can now see the flower in uh, her hair. Like, to be perfectly honest, I didn't pay that close of attention I saw, but now that you say that, you can see the line, you can see the dress, you can actually even see the flower in yeah. her hair. That is so cool. So that is our oldest, Elisa would dance and they captured a picture, right? It was a picture of her and she hired a abstract painter. We were going to change it because a lot of people are like, what is it? You know, we would ask people, but it's so cool that when they, when you tell them, they're like, aha, wow, I see it. So <laughs> yeah. it's, it's kind of cool. To our culture and to our herencia. And that's, we feel like, especially the dress, the Vallejo dress embraces it. So that's why we chose that. So anybody, if you guys have any questions, please feel free. You can put them in the chat or you can unmute yourselves and ask. What do you guys think of the wine, first and foremost? Is it, you guys enjoying it? <laughs> uh, unmute yourselves. Tell, tell them how you guys are enjoying it. It's so good. <laughs> Thank you. So good. Thank you. I love good. it. And, and just like you said, I prefer Sauvignon Blancs to be more fruity. Then I think you said oaky was the other word, or or no, you said something else, but I definitely prefer it to be fruity. Yeah. It's refreshing. What foods do you think are really best to pair up with the Sauvignon Blanc? So uh, I really enjoy lemon-based ceviche, some fish. I even enjoy pork chops with my Sauvignon Blanc. Anything that has some citric base to it, you know how to make pork chops with oranges and whatnot. I think that that, that complements really well with the Sauvignon Blanc. Sometimes just some cheese, a cheese platter, man. Yeah, it's just some what? cheese. What are you talking about? Yeah, <laughs> cheese, some cheese, some pani. Vámonos. What you did know, you say, Brenda? Pizza? Pizza, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Pizza, pizza. Basically, it's a, it's, whatever you it's want. It's an easy drinker. It's an easy drinker. It's an easy drinking wine. Really, really cold. Better be careful because it's going to creep up on you, man, pretty Yvonne quick. Yvonne is showing oh, – oh, first of all, Aaron, Yvonne lives in your Belinda which is where our parents live. She says they're having rockfish with a basil and mint relish with the Herencia wine. 
She fancy. Oh. She real fancy. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah. Oh, Sandra's asking, what other wines do you make? We make a Cabernet Reserve. So we make a really top, top, top notch uh, Napa Valley Cab. Napa is known for the Cabernets that we produce. So we make a really high end uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. We also make a regular standard cab, a little lower tier uh, as far as quality, but still very good. We actually had a Zoom uh, earlier today with the Hispanic magazine, I believe, and um, we sent them a 2013 uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, so it does pretty good. We also make a Merlot, a Napa Valley Merlot. We make a Napa Valley Zinfandel. We make a Sonoma Coast Chardonnay from Sonoma, and the Sauvignon Blanc is a Napa Valley Sauvignon Blanc. We also make a Rosé. This year, we're going to make a dessert wine. We're going to make a Sauvignon Blanc dessert wine. And we're probably going to start making some some champagne. Sparkling, Sparkling wine. Yeah. My wife likes the bubblies. Yes. The Murrays, which is Heather and Matt and Matt's parents, are asking if they want to buy wine in Texas, how do they get it? You know, we used to have a distributor in Texas, and uh, he went out of business. So we haven't spoken to any other Texas distributors, but I'm sure we can ship it directly to you. If you're interested, send us an email and uh, we'll send you uh, whatever you want directly to your door. In the future, our wine club is going to be up and running. Some exciting things that are happening on our end, we're redoing our website. So right now our website's not really up and running, but any wines that you guys need, just send us an email. But once the website's up and running, we're going to offer a wine club. And in that wine club, there's going to be an opportunity to be able to stay at our ranch home. We're remodeling it right now. And for the top tier uh, wine club participants, part of your membership is going to include uh, a free stay at our ranch house as a token of our appreciation. And that is... He calls it a ranch. And I guess it is a ranch, but it's it's a house with a beautiful view on a vineyard. It's an amazing, amazing view. One of the best views you're ever going to see in your life. Yeah, our friends... Guys know I'm going. Sorry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It's nice. Yeah. So that's my goal. That's kind of what we're what we're doing. Uh, hopefully, uh, we'll keep it small, keep the production low, keep the quality high, and really be intimate with our customer. Get to know them. Get to know their families. You guys, um, they're already saying we're going to do a wine and cheese man retreat. There are. It's already. That would be, fun. That would be cool. Yeah, I that can would be, be nice. ringleader. Yeah. <laughs> I like the party part. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so just send send us an email, uh, Murray's. Yes, the Murrays are, they have the Murrays and the Furry Murrays. The Furry Murrays are the dogs. Let's see, Nicole said, so type of wine for every member of the family. Also, hell yes to the sparkling wine. She's here for it. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> awesome. Does anybody else have any other questions? Can you tell us a little bit about like what the situation is like at Nap in Napa right now with all the with COVID happening and do you have a tasting room and you know can we visit that? Yeah, so the situation currently in Napa is not that great. The tourism that we're used to has significantly dropped. And I think it's because everybody's kind of worried about this whole COVID thing, right? We do get some folks that are still coming into town, but it's not like before. We opened up a tasting room at the beginning of the year in February, right before the pandemic. The tasting room was called Braceros Tasting Lounge. The Braceros Tasting Lounge was a partnership between me and uh, a couple of my other friends uh, where we showcased Bracero wine, uh, Mexican-American-owned wines. And unfortunately, the COVID thing, they shut down the uh, tasting rooms. 
and we ended up not able to keep our lease because they, they wanted us to continue to pay and uh, the overhead and the expense, it just was too much for us. So we decided to, to retreat. Right now we don't have a tasting room, but hopefully once the ranch house is finished, uh, we can host uh, anybody that wants to come out and have a nice evening on uh, on a hillside overlooking some vineyard and drinking till you can't drink anymore. It's not the same, but you can still come. It's not like everything burnt down. It's actually even quieter. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, some places was like an hour to get a reservation and it's like, oh, we can walk right in. <laughs> like, So it does have its perks and you have better rates at the hotels. I've never seen them as cheap. Oh, it's kind cheap. of that. It's a good time yeah. to come. I mean, come. I mean, th- things are no, open. Yeah, he means it's just not as busy. It's not but busy. Things are open. There's just people are afraid to come i would say a room or like at the ranch overlooking a vineyard sounds better than a tasting room to me so sandra's asking if you guys offer wine like does the winery offer tours because she's ready to come i told her she needs to come well we'll we'll drive up there you know i did it by myself before i'm ready to like have company yeah that would be fun yeah We could set something up and somebody from this group reach out to us either through Jessica or directly. Yeah. Uh, we will accommodate you guys. We'll, uh, you know, we can go to the winery and do some barrel tasting and then we'll go up to the ranch and you can see the vineyard and all the views and whatnot. So uh, most definitely we can do something. Now understand that the way that we compete with the big Disneyland castles and waterfalls and all the stuff that you see in Napa is uh, we give we give you our time. And we hang out with you and we answer questions. We talk about stories and that's how we kind of offset. We give you more personal experience. It might involve coming out and hanging out with our guys as they're working so you can get to learn what we do in the vineyard. We talk about the vineyards and the vines. And last group that came out, we have a hill vineyard. It's basically drops. It's a 360 degree. It's basically a mound, but it's a big hill. And we ended up putting a, a picnic table on the top of that mound in the middle of the vineyard. And we had a beautiful picnic. And the folks that came up were just amazed because the view of the valley is, is amazing. So we do kind of stuff like that to offset, you know, all the Disneyland. But we can still time. recommend the Disneyland places. And yeah. if I'm available, I'd be happy to go too. <laughs> They're beautiful. A lot of the wineries are so fun. The valley's awesome. Oh, there's there's amazing wineries here in town. Yeah. You know, and there's some non-Hispanic friends of ours that have beautiful uh, uh, wineries. Doesn't have to necessarily be Mexican or Mava. We can uh, introduce you guys to some other families that make really really good wines. Beauty of it, right? Because you guys have relationships with all these people. You know where it's the local stuff. You want to know where the good stuff really is. Right. Yeah. But everyone here in the valley is like, you know, ultras, like they're clean. They take, you know, it's by appointment only now, where before it was, you can drop in. But everything is, I mean, you haven't had any outbreaks at wineries or it's been okay. Well, as far as COVID? They, yeah, as far as COVID. Because that's what makes me nervous when he says, I'm going to go on vacation. I'm like, oh, yeah. And then I won't do it <laughs> because I get scared. I definitely attest to that because I did go to winery while I was in Napa. And I'm very fortunate that I got to have dinner with the Herreras and then as as well as um, some of the other wineries that we're going to be tasting in the next couple of weeks. They're really just awesome, awesome people. 
So everything is very clean. Everything is six, like Aww. six feet apart. They're very good about that. Um, and then we even went into some, me and my sister went to some in Oregon that were the same way. You have to make an appointment. Aww. You have to be six feet apart. No, there's no walk-in. So if you guys do decide to go to the area, it I felt very safe. So do you guys have any other questions? Please feel free to ask anything because you guys get an hour of their time where they're just providing any answers or answering any questions that you want. The Murrays first asked, are you familiar with the Frias family, Frias Wine? Frias, yeah. We actually hung out with them uh, about a week ago. The Yamas family introduced me to, to the Frias so they're family. they're friends with some of our attendees, with Matt. Right, Matt? They're your parents? Many. Actually, they are. Right. Okay. Hi. Hey, how are you? Yeah, <laughs> Manny has actually been to our house here in Texas. Yeah, oh. tasting one time. Yeah, they're good people, good family. Yeah, similar story to y'all's. The dad, we we've toured their vineyard up there, and similar story with Mister Frizz, and then a couple of the sons are taking over the business. Manny being one of those. And yeah, very cool. Pleasure to meet you, sir. Nice <laughs> to meet you. Nicole asked, "Do you have a wine area that's your favorite out, like besides Napa?" Like Livermore, Lodi, Pismo, anywhere else? Uh, <laughs> and Helica's like, no. I like Chilean wines. I think Chile makes pretty good wines. I like some of the Bordeaux, some French, some French wines. I love Riojas. Well, let me tell you, Sandra actually went to Spain and brought, and this, this wine was so good that I still, I don't remember the name. I remember the label. She brought me back this Rioja from Spain and it was a matador on the label and a matador and then like a bull's head. And it was so good. And I took a picture, but I don't even have the picture anymore, but it was the best Rioja I had ever tasted in my entire life. I had a similar uh, experience in, in Italy. We flew into Rome and then we drove up towards uh, Venice. And on the way up through Venice, we stopped by and I had, it was a little town. I ordered some spaghetti and they had, and I said, do you have any wine? And they brought me out a Sangiovese. And I typically don't like Sangioveses. It was a Sangiovese from Umbria. And it blew me away. It's hands down, it's got to be one of the best wines I've ever had. So I would say Umbria, uh, Sangioveses. Other than that, I'm pretty stuck on Napa. I mean, Napa makes really, really good wines. <laughs> when we go places, we shouldn't do that, but we take our wine. Yeah. So. It's good wine. Why not? Yeah, and then we get a lot, like, uh, not just ours. I mean, we we also go wine tasting. And oh, yeah. I love to see that Laura and we, Nick you know, we work so the last so of their wine. I love that. They're finishing the bottle off. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yvonne asked, what variety of grapes do you grow? Okay, so that's a cool question. So we farm, our farming company farms close to about a thousand acres. We grow grapes for many of the wine, wines that you guys are familiar with. We produce grapes for Camus, Rumbauer, Sterling, Provenance, Coppola buys fruit from us, uh, Jessup Cellars, Black Stallion, Gotts. Uh, there's tons of them. I'm drawing a blank. So we grow a lot of grapes. The varietals that we grow that we farm are pretty much everything. We grow the Cabs, the Merlots, the Sauvignon Blancs, the Zinfandels, Petit Syrah, Tempranillo, Malbec, Cabernet Franc, Pinot Noir. We have a property in Sonoma Mountain. It produces really high quality Pinot Noir. We sell that to Schramsburg. Schramsburg has been buying Pinot Noir from us for a long time. Chenin Blanc, 
Grish Demeaners, uh, Muscat Canelli. What Some else? of these I've never heard of. What the heck is Muscat Canelli? That sounds like a you'd find in a movie. Hey, this is my friend Muscat Canelli. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful grape. You know, there's a lot of great varietals out there, and that's not even the Spanish wines or the Italian varietals. There's tons of varietals that I don't even know. Uh, but primarily here in Napa, that's kind of what's grown is those. And then within those varieties, you've got different renditions of those varieties. You get clones. So Cabernet has clone 337, 341, clone 7, clone 8, clone 4, all these different clones. And then underneath those clones, you get rootstocks for the different soil types. So you can have 110R rootstock, 101.14 rootstock. 3309 rootstock. And those all change the way the flavor is, right? Like all of those little things change the flavor? Well, it, they could. They can change the flavors. But what we do as farmers is we're trying to match a rootstock to that specific type of soil. Basically, what the scientists did when we had the phylloxera epidemic, are you guys familiar with phylloxera? So there was a huge crisis in the wine industry, and this was a, a, a world problem where the top portion of the, of the wine varietal, which is Cabernet, Merlot, these varietals can root themselves, right? They can be, they're called own-rooted. You can get a clipping, a cutting, you put it in the ground and it grows in it and, it, and it'll establish roots. And most of, the, most of the world was producing grapes in this manner, specifically in Europe. When they started growing that varietal in North America through the uh, through the Padres when they came over with Spain, they were planting these these vines and they were sending them back to, to Europe. And what nobody knew was is that that varietal, that wine varietal, is comes from the Vitus vinifera species. That Vitus vinifera species is not native to North America. And in North America, what we have is we have a little insect called phylloxera. Phylloxera evolved with the native grapevines here in North America for many, many years. When the Vitus vinifera was introduced to in North America, the Vitus vinifera didn't have any resistant tolerance to that insect. And they ended up contaminating Europe and vineyards were dying and they were, you know, they were basically going dead. And you could Google this as far as the what they were trying to do. They were trying to flood vineyards to see if they could kill the, uh, uh, the insect. Anyways, there was no solution to it. What the scientists created was they utilized North American rootstock. Now, rootstock is vines that grow alongside the road. They're non-bearing fruit roots, and they're native to North America. And they basically consist of three, Riparia, Rapestris, and Berlandieri. Riparia, Rio, River, Berland, uh, Rapestris, and Berlandieri up in the hills. And what these scientists did is they basically crossbred these rootstocks to create different types of rootstocks. Some of them shallow rooted, some of them are more vigorous, some of them are drought tolerant. So what we do is we select the rootstock to put on a specific soil type. And most all vineyards in the world are created by two plants, the rootstock to control the phylloxera populations, and then the varietal, the vitus vinifera. So you learned something today. All vineyards in the world consist of two plants in one. No clue. I had no idea. I just know I like to drink the wine. 
So to answer your question, <laughs> we uh, we pick different rootstocks for different uh, soil types, for different varietals to grow in different areas, the hills or the flats or different type of soils. And, and, they, and they all will create a different type of wine. So Sandra asked, what advice would you give to someone who would like to start in the wine business? I'm just curious, like, how do you go from doing what you normally do and then all of a sudden it's like, ah, oh, I think I'll start a winery. So well, yeah. not that I'm thinking, but just curious. But you can. So a yeah. lot of people, it's got to be a passion for you, number one. You got to really love yeah. wine. You really got to, it really has to interest you. And there's a lot of people that make that crossover, right? Mid, at midlife, they've been a lawyer for many years, and all of a sudden they want to be a winemaker or a dentist, and they want to be a winemaker. I've seen it. Well, our winemaker did that. My, yeah, the that. guy that helps me with my wine, his name's Charles Keller. He's an Irish guy from New Jersey. <laughs> Super cool guy, yeah. named, uh, Charles Keller, good yeah. friend of mine. And he was a high-paying executive for Ford uh, Motor Company. Mm-hmm. And he just decided one day, you know what? It's not working out with my wife. We're going to get a divorce. Uh, I'm going to leave the East Coast and I'm going to go to Napa. And he did. He did. He came to Napa. He started working in the vineyards as a wine cellar. He started taking viticulture classes uh, here at the JC, at the college. And he ended up learning all the business from the bottom up. Worked for Rudd, Mandavi. Uh, He's a really good winemaker. And um, you could do it. You just got to want to do it. And you got to be able to do it. I mean, if if you have the means to be able to do it, or maybe even in your garage on your spare time, you know, call Guillermo. Hey, Guillermo, yeah, I want to send, send, send me some grapes. Uh, <laughs> send me some grapes so I can make some wine in my garage. I'll do There's a-, a new business for you, Guillermo. Yeah. yeah. Package it up. Start sending people to start making... And, and just re- great. They'll start making their own wine, which will make them buy your wine more because you'll be like, this is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> but you can do you can do it, Sandra. I mean, you there's a lot of things. It depends on what you want to do in the wine business. Do you want to be a sommelier or do you want to work at a restaurant or do you want to work at a winery or do you want to work in a vineyard? They're all different. Or do pathways. you want to just have a podcast where you drink wine and talk about wine? <laughs> Yeah. I know people that have started Instagram accounts and they start tasting people's wine. Now, all of a sudden, they have like 10 million followers and they're getting paid and they're getting free wine. And now it's a full time job. I mean, there's all kinds of things you can do. I guess number one is you have to love it, right? Yeah, everything I think is a passion. Like for Charles, our winemaker, we still love him. It was it was a passion for him. I remember that a lot of people here... So winemakers are people that have been in this valley and they their parents know people. And so then you get trust that way. Well, he was new because he was from Jersey. And I remember that Guillermo said, he's going to be our winemaker. And I know he's going to do a good because he was getting like kind of like, no, no. And you know what? We the first year we won awards from his wine that he made for us. So, I mean, that was a. That was awesome. And he's still doing awesome. Now people are like, wait, who's your winemaker? <laughs> um, so that's cool. But yeah, I just, you have to have a passion, but it's not, it's not super hard. I, it is hard and like selling it wise when you're smaller, like, you know, Guillermo says you don't have like all the glam, but if you have a good product and you're passionate about your product, I think that it, you know, it'll work out. Yeah. It all works out, Jessica, when you have a wine and cheese man, Zoom, and then everybody buys a case. 
<laughs> that's right. That's right. Yvonne has a question. Yvonne, do you want to ask your question? Yes. So this is my husband, Daniel. Hi, Daniel. I've, I've been on so many Zoom calls with Yvonne. It's nice <laughs> to see the, the other half. Right, right, right. <laughs> so kind of on that same topic of getting started and whatnot. So I've heard that there's like camaraderie amongst the, the wineries when it comes to or or helping each other, helping new people getting into the into the business and whatnot. As far as, you know, loaning space or equipment or even like the leftover grapes that are on the vines and stuff like that to new people getting into the business. Is that something that, that you guys do or or is there anything that, you know, yeah, you would you would donate or or that you do? give to maybe, you know, the stuff that you have left over that you would give to, to other wineries or other people that are that are maybe just getting started? There is that sense of supporting each other here in this community. Yeah. Uh, it is like in any other business, it's all about relationships, right? It's who you know and, uh, and how you get along with them. And people tend to do business with people they know and they help each other. It's like any other business. Do we have grapes that we just give to folks like that? Not really, but that's not to say that I wouldn't help somebody if they asked me and if there was some benefit to uh, that relationship. Sometimes it's just a matter of being nice, right? And just helping somebody out, getting to hear their story and trying to figure out what their goals are. One beautiful thing about the Mexican-American Vendors Association is not only are we advocating for ourselves collectively, but we're also giving back to our community. So we have big events every year where we raise a lot of money, and we help kids go to college. Somebody needs something. We all kind of collectively come together and help. It would be interesting if like, uh, if like, for instance, if you said, hey, guys, uh, you know, I'm starting. This is my goal. If anybody is has a, you know, half a ton there out there that they could spare. What I would do then is spread that around the association and see if there's a vintner that has some extra fruit and it might work out. Nobody's ever really asked. And I don't think that it's something far-fetched. I think we would we would do something like that. Why not? If we can help somebody, I think it's always good to help. The answer is always no if you never ask, right? Because yeah. yeah, we, we've heard that from other wineries. Well, his friend was mentioning it, and so we figured we would ask, you know, because we've heard other wineries. They're like, yeah, this is our leftover stuff. We're just going to throw it away so you can have it. Like, yeah, I'll be honest with you. There's uh, Vineyards tend to produce primary fruit, primary crop in the zone of the the good fruit and then they also sometimes if it's an abundant year produces what's called second crop and typically the second crop we don't harvest it because it it doesn't ripen with the primary fruit and i've seen situation where people say hey uh, can we go in there and pick some of the second crop we're like yeah go take it so um there's always opportunities like that yeah i think i think that uh i mean if you're interested give me a holler and and we'll figure something out just this is so good (laughs) very good Giselle has a question and a comment I recently bought some wine barrels and they cut them up and we we put them on the side of the hill right, right here where we live and we started planting in them so I'm wondering uh-huh. is there any way that we can get wine barrels from you so we could use to start planting <laughs> I'll go pick them up if you're gonna throw them away. I just like you're literally like, right send there. Me, yeah, send me send me an email and uh, if uh, barrels come available, I'll just send you. I'll, I'll send you an email. I'll be honest with you. Uh, wine barrels are are especially here in Napa are sought after not only for other from other wineries, but for instance, La, las tequileras in Mexico, brandy. Really? Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. 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 They actually call us. And we ship, a lot of the wineries have 
contracts with the tequileros in Mexico because we ship our wines out to Mexico so that they can age their uh, their tequila in our in our used wine barrels. Wow, that's crazy! Quick question: yeah. Have you guys ever ex- um, experimented yeah. with some different ingredients, and you're like, um, "No, we're throwing this away. This is terrible idea." No, we haven't. I haven't experimented with any. Uh, although I, I did want to. You know, when that song came out, what's it called? The whiskey song. Have you guys heard that whiskey song? <laughs> Tennessee whiskey. Tennessee whiskey. I really like that song. that song. I love that song. He's like, can you play that song again? I'm like, I But he, met, he, he mentioned <laughs> strawberry wine. I'm like, who the hell makes strawberry okay. wine, right? Boone's Farm, Strawberry Hill. Yeah. I've never had strawberry wine. Uh, is, is, is it really wine wine or is it like a, is it like a wine cooler? Okay, wait. Who has had Strawberry Hill? Girl, I have to tell you, that was the wine that was served in our wedding limbo. So <laughs> it is it is yeah. definitely a Mexicano thing. I think it's definitely like I it's definitely like the first things. Wait, I need to ask the Murrays. Have you ever heard of Strawberry Hill? First of all, mm-hmm. Heather and Matt, had you guys ever heard of Strawberry Hill? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So like, it's like the first wine you ever get drunk off of. I think I was fifteen. Mm-hmm. The first time I ever got, yeah, I see my sister having the face because she remembers probably this time when I came home drunk as a skunk from Strawberry Hill. It's oh like God. the first thing you always get drunk off of. Eva, you have a comment. <laughs> I just want to say when Jessica first was telling us about this, I said to her, I don't really like whites. I like reds. Why don't you have more reds? But I'm drinking it and it is excellent. Thank so you. I may be converting a little bit over more to white. <laughs> Thank you. You should try the Chardonnay. The Chardonnay is amazing. Yeah, people love the Chardonnay. The Chardonnay is amazing. Yeah, it's really, really good. So congratulations to both of you. It's Thank, thank you so you much. Jessica. It. It's, it's really good. I will say, so Giselle is my business partner, and I actually met um, Giselle's husband and her mom right before I went to Napa to see, to meet you guys. <laughs> yes, she did. So, that's what Eva was telling me. And I, and one thing, let me just kind of, for all of you guys, one thing that I've learned, the more wine that I drink, because you guys obviously know I like drink a lot of wine because I drink different wine with every interview is I used to say the same thing. I only liked red wines. I didn't like whites, but the more I drink, I realized that it's really finding the type of wine that's good for your palate, right? If you haven't found a red wine that you if you're like, I don't like red wines, it may be just because you haven't found the right red wine that you like. Just experimenting with trying different wines is such a good idea. So I appreciate everybody who's on here who said they didn't like wine or anything like that to try something new and really support these these small businesses and to support Mava and to support Edencia Wines and all of the other wineries. Um, Norma, I know you have a question, so please, Norma, Norma Newton. Hi, hi. Thank you so much for um, hosting, Jessica, and thank you, Guillermo and Angelica, for being here and for making such a great product. I have a question about distribution. I'm wondering if Mava has made a an effort to unite and distribute together. I know distribution is such a large barrier to entry in a lot of industries, and so I'm wondering if the organization is trying to work together so that to amplify your voice and to really be able to move product. 
Yeah, so here's my thoughts with regards to how to, so first I was the vice president, right? We were new to MAVA. We were very attracted to the whole idea of other Mexican-American vintners and wineries. And, and we wanted to be part of that family as a new wine producer here in town. I came in as a vice president. Then I, I'm on my second term as president. And one of the things that I've been able to capture from having those positions is the membership's limitations. One of the big problems with even negotiating a distribution arrangement with uh, with somebody is the inability for the membership to be able to meet that possibility, that opportunity. Let me give you an example. Uh, all of a sudden you come to, you walk up to one of the members and you say, hey, uh, we have a really great opportunity going to Costco. They're requesting that we make XYZ product per vintner and they're going to carry us in all their stores. It's a big jump for most of the members and it's a big risk and it's scary because now all of a sudden you're asked to create all this product. You're probably not going to get paid up front. You need to come up with the money to make that product. So it's a process that has been, been very difficult for a lot of the membership. So one of the things that I as president have and my wife has helped me a lot uh, we, we're trying to implement something that adds some value to the members. And the value that we want to add to the members is exposure, marketing capabilities, so that they can slowly grow up, uh, grow into uh, larger production. We're going to create a MAVA wine club. And this wine club is going to be offered to all the folks that follow MAVA. And if you guys are familiar with the MAVA, uh, with wine clubs, you sign up to a wine club and they ship you out their wines quarterly or once a month or twice a year. In the Mava wine club uh, scenario, we're going to uh, send you an assortment of wines from 18 different Mexican-American wineries. The purpose of that is to give some of the members that following that they haven't been able to acquire on their own. And the five to 10 year plan is hopefully over the course of maybe three to five years being in the MABA Wine Club, we can increase some of these productions for the members and position us in a way that we can then go to a distribution a chain and say, hey, listen, we're no longer making 150 cases per vintner. We're making 1,000 cases per vintner. We can fulfill 18,000 cases through your distribution chain. Let's talk. So the goal is Hopefully, you know, rising tide lifts all ships is the saying, right? So hopefully by MAVA elevating the marketing and, and, and its reach and adding value to these members, we can one day be in a position to capitalize on on uh, these distribution opportunities. But it's difficult, man. I mean, it's to convince one of these members, hey, can you make a thousand cases next year? Because I got a deal coming up. Of course, scaling is difficult for most small businesses, yeah. especially when it's so capital intensive as is in your in your industry. But that's great to hear that MAVA is going to be doing that because I have no business buying any kind of wine except from your organization. So I'm your ideal client. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so I'm happy, to I'm happy to hear that you'll be doing that. The other uh, limitation to uh, most Latino businesses is, is navigating through the financial part of, of doing business, right? Is, is uh, most Latino-owned businesses have a very difficult time acquiring capital, uh, getting those finance uh, financial uh, institutions to support 
our community. So it's opening that dialogue with those different supporting groups that can help us. Like there's a organization here in town called the Stanford Latino Initiative. Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with it. Yeah, and they bring they bring uh, uh, different Latino businesses to to meet with angel investors, and they teach you how to create a business plan. So I think we need more of that within the organization and within our own community because most of us created this business at a sheer effort, at a uh, sweat off our brow. And now we're getting to a point where we're like, what's the next step, right? We're making great wine. I'm really happy to hear all the positive feedback, but how am I going to take the business to the next level? And uh, it's challenging uh, to say the least. Um, so if you know of any uh, organizations out there that, that want to you know, get behind some of these uh, efforts, throw them my way. As consumers or as investors or both? Anything. Consumers always. Throw as many consumers <laughs> as you as you want our way. But, you know, uh, anybody that's that's uh, positioned to add value to the organization uh, from a business standpoint mm-hmm. uh, is always so, welcome. The Murrays said they love that idea, which I think is a really awesome idea, like pulling, pulling that. Eva asks, making more amounts, does that change the taste or the quality of the wine? I think that there's a way to make a high quality product in large amounts, obviously. But I think that when you reduce the quantity to such a small amount, you put your heart and soul into it. I think that you typically are going to have a higher quality product at smaller yields. You're going to take care of it a little bit differently. Or at least I, I, I guess I'm speaking from that side of the spectrum because that's all I make is, high, is small quantities. And we're very meticulous with barrel selection, yeast. Uh, extended maceration. We're going to bleed a certain percentage to get this, the ratio of skin to juice content to where we want it. And we're also going to harvest it a little bit more meticulously. We're going to pick the ripest areas of the vineyard. We're going to make sure we take all the leaves out, all the stems. We're going to create the best possible fruit to put in the barrel. So from my standpoint, I think you're going to achieve higher quality at, at smaller smaller amounts, always. When somebody tells you they're making 150 cases, I think you should expect high quality. I just want to say thank you, guys. Thank you, Guillermo and Angelica. Thank you so much. They're the ones who really helped put everything together, right? They're the ones who, like, I worked with Angelica and Guillermo in regards to getting those three wines that you got because the fourth one is coming separately. They're the ones who really coordinated with um, Ondrama and Yamas to make sure that you guys got those wines. They're the ones who shipped them out. Literally, if it wasn't for these two, none of this would be happening. So thank you guys so, so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast. For more information on today's guest, please see the show notes for links to websites and social media channels. You can check out all things Wine and Chisme on our website, thewineandchismepodcast.com. There, you will find the names of wines I drink each episode, as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can even apply to be a guest straight from there. You can also find us on social media at The Wine and Chisme on Instagram and at The Wine and Chisme Podcast on Facebook. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Chisme, please subscribe, rate, and Five-star ratings are appreciated, and those positive reviews are appreciated even more.